Kia ora. I'm Anne O'Brien, Director of the Auckland Writers' Festival, and you're listening to the session podcast, How Lucky Were We?, from our 2018 programme. Bitingly clever satire, delivered with a well-timed drollness, marked John Clark's work, which included the black-singleted, gumboot-cladded Fred Dagg, the alternative national anthem, We Don't Know How Lucky We Are, the groundbreaking mockumentary The Games, and weekly skits on the absurdities of Australian political life with longtime collaborator Brian Dore. To mark his death and the republication of his novel, The Tournament, alongside two other writing collections, friends and colleagues Tom Scott and Michael Hayward gather with Clark's daughter Lauren, herself an accomplished writer, to pay tribute to this remarkable man. The session is chaired by Gemma Gracewood. We hope you enjoy it. And I made a point to introduce all three of you as John's friends because something that came through in all the, all the um, tributes that I was reading um, since John died was uh, that everybody seemed to write about what an incredible friend he was and how wonderful he was at um, beginning and then maintaining friendships. And a lovely question for a Sunday afternoon is what can we all learn about friendship from John? Well... Dad was a, uh, an enthusiast above all else. Um, quite often people would say to me, I had a chat to your dad at the thing the other night. I did not know that he was so interested in <laughs> bicycles <laughs> 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 or <laughs> World War II or whatever. And uh, he, he always was interested in, in just about anything. Um, and and particularly in people, and he he actually, when asked what his uh, his influences were, he used to list he he could list people like Spike Milligan and um, Peter Cook and Ruth Draper and Joyce Grenfell and you know the list of people. But his first answer was always talk, um, and he grew up in a family with parents who were really good at talking, which he talks about in, uh, in Tinkering. Um, he, he, he's written some more... Re recently, he started writing these more sort of reflective pieces and biographical uh, snapshots. Um, and so, yeah, he, he, he loved that. He loved l listening as a kid to the adults in the next room and the, the cousins. Uh, chattering and and I think if you if you read anything by him you can see you can see that can't you and yeah. th and that's about making human connections and friends and friendships and so on. Michael, you've been publishing him for so long, more than twenty years, but presumably have had a friendship that yeah. entire time as and, well. And and talk talk was it. We would occasionally hold um, signings and the people at the back <laughs> of the queue needed. A mountain tent and survival rations because by the time John had had a proper chat with everyone who wanted a book signed, you know, it was dusk and starting to rain. So he loved all of that. The other thing about John was if I had something I wanted to ask him, you know, would he be interested in doing something? So I'd call. And he was always a wonderful man to call on a boring day in the office because it would, it would smarten up very quickly. Um, but John never said no. He never, ever said no to anything. But I knew as I was talking to him, the longer the answer went, <laughs> the more... Def and once we got on to Tibet or whatever it was, <laughs> it was a very clear no, but then we just ended up having a wonderful chat. Uh, so, no, it, it talk... And, and he, 
The other part of talk was, and I think this is reflected just in how good his ear was and how uh, sort of clean um, his, his concept of his writing was, was he listened. He was an amazing listener and he was extremely good at hearing those sort of um, those those little phrases that we sow into our speech to get us to where we want to go, and which he could then duplicate uh, to enormous comic effect. You know. And Tom, you've known John the longest of anyone here. What? You yeah, before Lauren? Yes, yeah, obviously yeah. before Lauren. <laughs> <laughs> Don't be silly. I've known him my whole life. <laughs> I heard about John. I was a student at Massey, and honestly, hearing about John was like hearing about Jesus of Nazareth, of comedy. <laughs> People came up from Wellington back to Palmerston for the holidays, and they would say, you've got to meet this guy, John Clark. He is just, he's a wee, wee bit like you, way better than you, and uh, <laughs> he's just terrifically funny. So I knew about John. His legend spread back to Palmerston North, and... It took me two years before I finally met him, and he was every bit as good as everyone, everyone described. He was just the most amazingly funny man. And what I liked about John, his comedy had the quality of an ice puck. It just was effortless. It, you know, we all strained and sweated and worked hard and tried hard to be funny. It, for John, it just seemed like a federal backhand. He was just apparently effortless. It's interesting to hear you, Michael, say that he would say no to things eventually because um, a friend of mine who works in Melbourne government um, wrote to him once to ask if they could show a video at a, at a very big conference with a lot of Melbourne transport people. And he came back to her immediately and said, yes, that would be fine, but what, what would be even better is that Brian and I could come along. We'd, we'd happily come along. This is Clark and Dor, the amazing partnership. And she went, oh, this is, this is thrilling, and went to her boss, and in a twist that John no doubt would have loved, they went, Oh, no. No, that'd be a bit too interesting for this conference. <laughs> but, I w but I wonder how it felt to share him, because he seems to have been so generous with his, his time and his words. And mm. yeah. yeah, well, that's an interesting question, because, of course, when somebody's been your dad your whole life, uh, you kind of don't have a another dad to compare it to um so you don't really know what it's like people used to say well, yeah, what what still do what what's it like to have had him as a dad and you you kind of the only answer to that really is uh which is i think true and and kind of is what you're maybe getting at with the friends question is it's kind of how you would imagine it would be so, um, you know, he, he, uh, he, he kind of was all of those things and, um, and sharing him, uh, you know, has, has, was never something that, uh, it's, it's, it's something that kind of since he's been gone has, um, has been something that has, has kind of changed things, but, um, but yeah, he he was such a he talked to everybody. So he'd 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 be up the back and and you know at at a thing like this, and you'd walk out and you'd say, uh, "What did you think?" And he'd say, "I thought this," and I thought that. I was very interesting. And this and that. the guy at the door, uh, grandfather from Tipperary. Um, <laughs> Married to interestingly uh, a a scientist, um, and he you know had had a big chat about 
about that with whoever that was. And so, you know, it, I suppose there are lots of people whose dads are like that and that just was a kind of bigger version of that. Yeah, well, but, um, I mean, in comedy, you know, the, the pleasure he gave us all was, was so immense. And where many comics and artists tend to wear the heavy crown of fame, he seems to have been endlessly delighted in life. And, you know, for all we know, his mental health was, was really actually quite great. And I'm wondering what some of the secret domestic ingredients are that, that ensured that. Um, I think he was, the word that I started with kind of, I think, is, you know, that enthusiasm, that kind of curiosity uh, about people and life and so on, which a lot of writers have. Uh, I think that was, was something that he had always had um, and, and continued to delight in. And, and I think, you know, he... That he, f he that extended to his relationship with his audience, um, so that he like he he loved it when the audience got involved. For instance, Farnarkling, which you mentioned earlier, he um, he went on TV in Australia and did Farnarkling, uh, which was a made-up sport, um, <laughs> and which but which was very seriously discussed. Uh, using very sporty language and so on. And he went on TV and he did this and people started writing letters to the paper saying, um, a disgraceful article from Dave Sorensen on the weekend uh, <laughs> and really getting into this fake sport <laughs> to, to the point where, um, yeah, after, uh, after Dad died, we were a, a nice man from, <laughs> from the newspaper, The Age in Australia, wrote to us and said, I've got a file about this big full of letters <laughs> regarding farnarkling uh, <laughs> from very concerned citizens writing about various events during the farnarkling, <laughs> during, you know, the most recent article and so on. Uh, and that sort of thing, you know, uh, he, he, he had that, he enjoyed that with his audience. I think the other example I can think of is when he was doing Fred Dagg and he went on uh, TV, I think, and he and he said uh, that he was, the election was coming up and he just offhandedly said that he thought he'd give it a run. Uh, and a few people uh, crossed out the candidates on their forms and wrote <laughs> F DAG, um, as instructed by him. Um, and he enjoyed, he enjoyed that relationship. And, th and there are a couple of quotes that, uh, there are a couple of, I mentioned this in the introduction to Tinkering, you know, he, um, he had, th there were two things that he used to, that he, that I remember him particularly enjoying his audience saying to him. Um, and he always said, you know, I'm, I come from my audience, like I, I'm at an advantage because I, I was sitting there as an audience member, you know, or as a, he, he was a listener and a watcher and a, so on and, 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 you know, listened to all the people around him and so on. So he always thought he came from his audience, but he said there were two things that uh, certain, that, that people came up to him and said. One of them was somebody said, I like, it was, he was playing golf one day and somebody said, hi, I like your stuff. And he said, oh, thank you, you know, I'm just trying to help. Um, <laughs> and he said, uh, and, and this bloke said, 
Uh, yeah, it's like a secret between you and the audience. And he loved that. And the other uh, one is, uh, was specifically about Clarkendor, and it was a woman, and she said to him, oh, I, I really like what you do. Um, because, what was it? I've got to get the, I wrote it down beforehand. Oh, yeah, because I, wa that's it. Because when I watch Clark and Dor, I have a straight face, and then I laugh at the news. <laughs> <laughs> so that's what I wrote down nice. earlier, because I thought that's the best example of him enjoying that relationship yeah. with his audience. Yeah. Well, on that note, um, let's watch a clip from John's most famous and enduring collaboration. This is Clark and Dor. Senator Collins, thanks for coming in. It's a great pleasure, thank you. This ship that was involved in the incident off Western Australia this week... Yeah, the one the front fell off? Yeah. Yeah, that's not very typical. I'd like to make that point. Well, how is it untypical? Well, there are a lot of these ships going around the world all the time, and very seldom does anything like this happen. I just don't want people thinking that tankers aren't safe. Was this tanker safe? Well, I was thinking more about the other ones. The ones that are safe? Yeah, the ones the front doesn't fall off. Well, if this wasn't safe, why did it have 80,000 tonnes of oil on it? Well, I'm not saying it wasn't safe, it's just perhaps not quite as safe as some of the other ones. Why? Well, some of them are built so the front doesn't fall off at all. Well, wasn't this built so the front wouldn't fall off? Well, obviously not. How do you know? Well, because the front fell off and 20,000 tonnes of crude oil spilled into the sea caught fire. It's a bit of a giveaway. I'd just like to make the point that that is not normal. Well, what sort of standards are these uh, oil tankers built to? Oh, very rigorous maritime engineering standards. What sort of thing? Well, the front's not supposed to fall off for a start. And what other things? Well, there are uh, regulations governing the uh, materials that they can be made of. What materials? Well, cardboard's out. And? No cardboard derivatives. Like paper? No paper. No string, no sellotape. Rubber? No, rubber's out. Um, they've got to have a steering wheel. There's a minimum crew requirement. What's the minimum crew? Oh, one, I suppose. So the allegations that they're just designed to carry as much oil as possible, uh, oh, how are the consequences? I mean, that's ludicrous. Absolutely ludicrous. These are very, very strong vessels. So what happened in this case? Well, the front fell off in this case, by all means, but it's very unusual. But Senator Collins, why did the front book fall off? Well, a wave hit it. A wave hit it? A wave hit the ship. Is that unusual? Oh, yeah. At sea chance in a million. So what do you do to protect the environment in cases well, like this? the ship was towed outside the environment. Into another environment? No, 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 it's been towed beyond the environment. It's yes, not in the environment. A, no, but from one environment to another environment. No, it's beyond the environment. It's not in an environment. It well, has it been towed be beyond the environment. Well, what's out there? Nothing's out there. Well, there must be something there out there. There is nothing out there. All there is is sea and birds and fish. And? And 20,000 tonnes of crude oil. And what else? And a fire. And anything else? And the part of the ship that the front fell off. But there's nothing else out there. Senator Collins, thanks it's for joining us. a complete us. void. Yeah, we're out of time. The environment's perfectly safe. We're out of time? Yeah. Can you book me a cab? But didn't you come in a Commonwealth car? Yes, I did. But what happened? Well, the front fell off. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's unpack that. Let's, let's talk about the magic ingredients in, in John's writing and his love of um, form. I mean, he, he really was a comedian of language. Mm. Tom, would you like to go there? Sorry, oh, Michael. Well, you can't follow that. <laughs> no, no, yeah. no one can follow that, but unfortunately yeah. we still have 43 minutes to go. So. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I think the use of form, the, the, the word form uh, you used, if you, the, the tinkering, we found that a lot, didn't we, when we were, yeah. we were looking through all of the materials and putting together this, um, that form, which he talked about explicitly in relation to writing generally whenever that was sort of discussed, form uh, 
was something he uh, treasured as a writer. So, you know, there are, there are things in here, for instance, there are a few things in here that are not anywhere else that have sort of never been published before, including um, letters from the school uh, to some the parents of some recalcitrant birds, um, uh, which because Dad was a uh, loved photography, um, and almost as much as he loved bicycles. <laughs> no, he did actually love photography, and he took uh, photographs of these uh, of birds a lot, and he he kind of borrowed the form of the letter, the stern letter home from the principal, to to. And he, he borrowed form a lot. In Clark and Dor, for instance, he w often said, wouldn't have happened. Uh, it, I mean, it, w it was significant anyway that it was in the context for the first, I think, 20 years. It was in the context of serious current affairs shows. So first on Channel 9 in Australia and then on the ABC, it was the final three minutes of the evening current affairs shows and it required that seriousness that that form kind of set it up um, and the interview format as well there are many other examples of form in here um, one of my favorites is the um, the writing about 10 year olds and, and five-year-olds and you know childhood as if he were writing policy analysis <laughs> which is yeah, yeah. What, we, what are some of your favourites, Michael? Well, you know, when you hear... I mean, those interviews are as precisely constructed as a sonnet. They've, they've, and they're intensely written. And as Lauren says, it was to do with the form of television. There was 90 seconds or two minutes and it had to fit exactly. But even before that, I think, you know, as a, as a Kiwi in Australia, John had the advantage of that insider-outsider view. And the first thing he saw was just how ridiculous Australian politics is. And... <laughs> And, and 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 he and he he was just, you know, the opening interview in in the collection, uh, is with Paul Keating, and Paul Keating's opening words are "Pleasure to be here, have some brie," you know, and he <laughs> and he would absolutely <laughs> cut, he would just cut straight away, and and so having, fa you know, John loved games. I mean, he really did love sport, and he revered athletes and 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 sports people but he also what he really loved was the language of sports commentary and and he loved the sort of persona and it comes out of Fred Dagg of the sort of deranged commentator the deranged <laughs> pundit and 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 in in the derangement that allows him to speak the truth and so he w he was constantly making verbal games and and creating new sets of rules for himself and having sort of worked out what the rules were and what the language was, that then gave him the freedom to say whatever it was the, that he wanted to say. So, you know, when an author turns up in your office saying, look, I've got a book that might interest you, Michael, it's a tennis tournament and, <laughs> it's, you know, there's a full men's draw and there's a full women's draw and there's a full doubles draw, men's and women's, and a full mixed draw and it's... And I want Basically, everyone. <laughs> and I want to list the results. Yeah, yeah, and, and, oh, and show and the, and the results. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I'm, I mean, it, you know, it, it was the thoughts of Chairman Mao, sort of like it was enormous, um, and said, I don't think we should, I think we should publish this, and and when someone presents you with something that is so logically thought out and so clearly bonkers, right? <laughs> it's, you know, and 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 I don't know whether any of you have read the tournament. But it is ludicrously funny because, you know, it's Picasso and it's Woody Allen and it's, 
you know, Diaghilev, and it's everybody playing tennis. My, one of my <laughs> favourite exchanges is when um, uh, Ayn Rand's draw, drawn to play Beatrix Potter, and, <laughs> <laughs> and they and 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 so they you know do the toin cost at the net, and 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 Beatrix says you know good luck Ayn, and Ayn says get out of my way Beatrix, or I'll fucking kill you. <laughs> <laughs> Tom, what was it like to, to have John write for you, to have those words delivered to you? Well, I was going to say, he, he, he held a funhouse mirror up to reality. What, he had bureaucratic, bureaucratic language and he just stepped into a parallel line alongside it and you heard politicians' words and politicians' languages and cliches and subterfuge coming straight back at you. And I was going to say, just reminded that this is the royal wedding, obviously, yesterday. The first time I ever heard John, before I even met him, was the Princess Anne, Captain Mark Phillips wedding, and it was, I'm not with Barney put the, the single out, it was on New Zealand radio, and John did it as Peter Kelly, a famous New Zealand racing commentator, <laughs> and <laughs> Captain Mark Phillips and Princess Anne are here in the holding pen, waiting for the, <laughs> just waiting for the balloon to go up, and they're on the way down the aisle of Westminster Abbey, and he did it, a, a whole race inside the Westminster Abbey, <laughs> Captain Mark Phillips and Princess Anne, and she was drawing ahead and he was drawing ahead. And the, the last line was the killer line, Princess Anne by a nose. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And you just thought, God, this guy is great. Then I, then I, then I met him and, and we clicked. And I was thrilled. If you made John laugh, if John would go, John thought something was really good. You might get a, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and that was high praise from John. If you made him laugh, my God, you'd won the jackpot. And he would read stuff out to me, and I'd read stuff out to him. And his stuff was incredibly funny and, and original. And um, you can still pull out the masquerade we did together. It was so successful, it ended up with thousands in my garage because the students at Massey didn't want it because it wasn't vulgar. That's the first time I've ever heard John say fuck in the... Yeah. And, and anything. Hey, John, but John was actually... No, no, it was Ayn Rand. Ayn Rand's It wasn't, Ayn John. <laughs> wasn't John Clark. Yeah. <laughs> Were you witness to John doing Peter Kelly into an empty beer jug, which apparently was a, was a specialty? He did it. You he put your head in the I beer jug. I heard it again. I heard about it. But John's generosity as an artist, when he was performing this at Victoria University, a famous race with sort of uh, fleas or ants or something across the floor of an empty stage, and whenever John's flea got behind, he stood on it, or it stood on the rivals. But a man, a strange little boy, intense, weird little boy called Paul Holmes came up to him and said, I can do a Peter Kelly, get better Peter Kelly than you. And because Paul had been sickly as a kid and listened to radio a lot, same as John had listened to a lot of radio. And John generously gave this fantastic sketch to Paul Holmes. And Paul Holmes performed it thereafter. And one famous occasion at the Chateau, when they did a show, and the first half was just dreadful. No one was laughing. Jeanette McDonald was in it, John Banners, John Clark, of course, and Paul Holmes. And all these Hawke's Bay hoons were not the least bit amused at this show from Wellington. Then Paul came out and did the Peter Kelly routine, and they brought the house down. Then the people said, we'll give you some more money if you do the whole show again, because they'd warmed up by then. So they did the whole show again, and it was funny from start to finish. And Paul, Paul Holmes doing John's material was the absolute star. Went up to the bar afterwards, and the, all these Hawks Bay guys in by yellow shirts and needle cords said, Yeah, can I buy you a beer, mate? Paul said, Oh, well, no, I'd prefer a gin and tonic. No, nah, no, nah, stay in character. 
stage, yeah, stage, do it as they play. Paul said, I would like a gin and tonic if you don't mind. <laughs> a gin and tonic is what I would prefer at this point in time. I think a gin and tonic is what I would like. I'd be most desirous of a gin and tonic. And that became Paul's voice for the rest of his life. Yeah. <laughs> and it's... John, the one thing John can be criticised for is he foisted Paul Holmes on the rest of his own. <laughs> <laughs> but he gave a fantastic sketch away to another artist, because John was that confident in himself. He, that's, he had confidence and he had calm and he was brilliant. I mean, something that's so, so significant about John's comedy is that Fred Dagg, the black singlet, the gumboots aside, he never went for wigs and costumes. How did that give more power to his comedy? Uh, you might be better at this one. Well, I think the, ge the genius of the interviews was that, I mean, John was a phenomenally gifted parodist. You know, he wrote this book called The Even More Complete Book of 20th Century Verse, which is as, as good a book of parodies of the English tradition that uh, you would ever, uh, you could ever hope to read. He had an absolutely brilliant ear, but the genius of the interviews, the political interviews, is that he, you know, because we're very used to political satire where someone pretends to be Bob Hawke or Piggy Muldoon or whoever it is, was that he, he was playing John Clark being a political satirist and that allowed him enormous freedom. I also think that it, there was, the other thing about John, he, he, he was, he was, his satire was ruthless, absolutely ruthless, but that combined with something that was essentially genial. You never felt, even when people were at, on, on the receiving end of his satire, that anybody was being diminished at all. There was, there was something intensely celebratory ab ab about the whole thing, and, and I think that's because what he was, John was a really serious writer and, and, and actually what he was at the service of truth and, and so it took him into a zone beyond, he would never pick on people, there were that kind of thing he hated but he did really care about what the truth was and that's why his audience loved him and that's why you had to watch Clarkendall with a straight face and, and, you know, and then laugh at the news. You know. That's a beautiful segue to our next video which is um, it's an excerpt from the series The Games. Who saw the games? Okay. For those who didn't, uh, it was a, a comedy series about the organisers of the 2000 Sydney Olympics, and um, who, of course, included John Clark and Brian Dore and, and several of their comedy friends. And um, this was a seminal television moment within the series, and that talkback radio went absolutely nuts that night and the next day and for several days afterwards. Um, in this episode, several nations have been threatening to boycott the Olympics over Australia's um, refusal to apologise for 200 years of injustice towards their First Nations people. And the team behind the Games are trying to come up with a solution. Play the video. Just before we play oh, it, the wait. one thing you need to know is that it was John Howard as Prime Minister oh, who yes. was refusing to issue an apology. There was an actor, very well known actor in Sydney, whose name was John Howard. So John thought, right, well, let's get John Howard to do the apology that he won't do. So, <laughs> Here we so go. the actor's name you're watching is John Howard. Mm. Thank you. Hello. Oh, 
to meet him with the Aboriginal people? Well, you know, what can you say? I totally agree with you, but what can I do? That's what the Germans said, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it is pretty much. Under the circumstances, it's a little bit difficult to get enthusiastic about running a whole lot of running races out here, isn't it? I've got an answer. I'm delighted to hear it, Gina. Coffee and Anne can't work it out. The International Court and the Hague reckon it's beyond their jurisdiction. I can't tell you how pleased I am that you've bowled it over. Look at this. Well, what is it? We send this overseas. Yeah, yeah, what is it? The rest of the world wants John Howard to apologise. Yeah, correct. Sit down. Good evening. My name is John Howard, and I'm speaking to you from Sydney, Australia, host city of the year 2000 Olympic Games. At this important time, and in an atmosphere of international goodwill and national pride, we here in Australia, all of us, would like to make a statement before all nations. Australia, like many countries in the new world, is intensely proud of what it's achieved in the past 200 years. We're a vibrant and resourceful people. We share a freedom born in the abundance of nature, the richness of the earth, the bounty of the sea. We are the world's biggest island. We have the world's longest coastline. We have more animal species than any other country. Two thirds of the world's bird species are native to Australia. We are one of the few countries on earth with our own sky. We are a fabric woven of many colors. And it's this that gives us our strength. However, these achievements have come at a great cost. We've been here for 200 years, but before that, there was a people living here. For over 40,000 years, they lived in perfect balance with the land. There were many Aboriginal nations, just as there were many Indian nations in North America and across Canada, as there were many Maori tribes in New Zealand and Incan and Mayan peoples in South America. These indigenous Australians lived in areas as different from one another as Scotland is from Ethiopia. They lived in an area the size of Western Europe. They didn't even share a common language, yet they had their own laws, their own beliefs, their own ways of understanding. We destroyed this world. We often didn't mean to do it, our forebears, fighting to establish themselves in what they saw as a harsh environment, were creating a national economy. But the Aboriginal world was decimated. A pattern of disease and dispossession was established. Alcohol was introduced. Social and racial differences were allowed to become fault lines. Aboriginal families were broken up. Sadly, Aboriginal health and education are responsibilities we have still yet to address successfully. I speak for all Australians in expressing a profound sorrow to the Aboriginal people. I am sorry. We are sorry. Let the world know and understand that it is with this sorrow that we as a nation will grow and seek a better, a fairer, and a wiser future. Thank you. What do you think? It's not the Prime Minister. He didn't say he was. 
He said he was John Howard speaking to you from Sydney, Australia. That's John Howard, the actor. That's John Howard. Everybody knows that's not the Prime Minister, don't they? Everyone in Australia knows that's not the Prime Minister. <laughs> no one overseas knows what the Australian Prime Minister looks like. <laughs> hey, look, the building next door has closed circuit television. I pumped the tape through there too. Oh, yeah. Oh. <laughs> Sign there, Sid. Congratulations. Thank you very much. You've done a wonderful thing. <laughs> Thank you. Who's Sid? Sorry, Sid Gaines. How are you? Uh, Sid who? Sid Gaines. <laughs> What's up? So, um, I mean, I would call that activist comedy through and through. <laughs> Um, I think that's as good as political satire gets. Mm. Yeah. It's, it's completely straight and it's devastating. Look, Lauren, um, what was the response? The response? In Australia and, and, and how did it impact on you as a young person when you saw uh, your dad do that? It that? Was, the response was significant. Um, it, it, was, uh, it was a... Dad wrote that um, that bit and which is which is in here um, and he was very uh, dad was always very you know we, we talked about um, form but but he always talked about as well tone in writing and he was always aware of tone and he loved you know working with other people who for instance Brian Dore he thought had you, it, just a fine understanding of rhythm and 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 kind of meter and tone of voice and so on. And John Howard, the actor, was approached by Dad, who rang him personally and said, oh, "This is my idea," and he said, "I'd I'd love to do that." And then it came to the day of the filming, and um, he said, uh, "He John Howard rang up and said, I'm terribly sorry, but I'm." I'm not sure I can come in today, uh, and they s uh, and the producer said, "Why not?" and 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 he said, "Because I'm not well, and my voice is has has going a bit, and I, I'm quite sick. I got the flu." And he said, "But I, I could come in if you like." And Dad spoke to him on the phone, and Dad said, "Come in," um, and he gave him a you know he sat there with a glass of water, and he was sort of grey and ill. And then he sat in the chair and he did that one read from start to finish with the crackly throat and the sort of vulnerable... <laughs> and Dad just thought it was, it was perfect, you know. Um, so that's... I remember that. I remember that was... Uh, he, he was very uh, grateful to John Howard for doing that at, and thought that that actually kind of added to the gravitas <laughs> a little bit. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, you know, um, it, it's the kind of comedy that, that is seeking to create change beyond yeah. the moment in the series that it's in. What were, th what were the things that, that he was concerned about? What were the things that kept him up at night? Well, for somebody who was an enthusiast, he also was very good at um, being pissed off about stuff, wasn't he? Yeah. Um, <laughs> political things, you know, like the systems, the way th sort of things worked, uh, he, he could always, 
uh, analyse those things. I think that was part of what he did. Um, and uh, I, don't, I don't really know that there was, you know, one specific thing, but he, um, he did manage to approach things with, with both that kind of uh, analytical mind and able, was able to sort of take a step back and see the, uh, the kind of funny side and the, um, to be able to sum it up and so on. And, you know, he, that, um, that tone thing I was talking about earlier, he, that, uh, he, he always said, you know, he, he learnt a lot doing Fred Dagg because he learnt to write through performance in those early days and and the the fact that those things can kind of carry you uh, well they can do a lot um, and you know he used to send uh, the, these guys probably can attest um, emails and so on that were in a certain tone or like you'd often get an email saying um, you know there is a <laughs> there is a, a bag of yours at my house you know, I would have left a bag there by accident because I'm an idiot. Um, there's a bag of the bag of yours at my house. Uh, I'm wondering whether or not you're going to come and pick this up. Yours, very sincerely, concerned of Melbourne. <laughs> <laughs> and you know that I, I'm making that up, but that was those sort of tonal things. I'm not. Uh, yeah, that um, that was kind of how he liked to carry the the whatever it was he was talking about. I think it uh, he, he was very um, careful with his political satire, so that those on the left and those on the right copped it equally. In fact, I mm. think you know if you if you hadn't been satirised by Clark and Dor, you know you had reason to be concerned that you really didn't matter at all. So I think politicians <laughs> qu quite enjoyed it. Uh, John was very quiet about the things that he did do. I know that he was quite involved because he did love birds so much and love photographing birds with environmental efforts to save wetlands and, and all of that kind of thing. He, 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 he did things in that area. But what he hated most um, was anything that resembled pretension or portentousness or uh, and, and, and using language to obfuscate the truth. Um, he, he, he couldn't stand all of that. Plus, um, John was... Um, he just couldn't help being funny. That was the thing. When we were editing um, the tournament, because it was so long and all the matches went to five sets and we had to fit it inside <laughs> one book. And so we'd spent... I remember this vividly. We'd spent um, a, a day, you know, a morning in the office trying to lose... What could we lose? What could we cut? We went out to get some lunch and it had clouded over and, and you know, so one of us said, oh, God, the, sun, the sun's gone in. And John said, well, just as well, otherwise we would have had to delete that too, you know. <laughs> <laughs> and he didn't miss a beat, you know, yeah. so it was never dull being around him, that was for sure. Hey, there's, there's something else I noticed watching that um, again this week, that scene uh, of the apology, is that and it's, and it's a small but very significant detail. He gives the idea of the John Howard apology to Gina, the female character. And I don't think that's an accident. And so I wanted to ask about John Clark, the feminist, and um, the ally, mm. and uh, what it must have been like at home, you know, having surrounded by three women, and um, whether you sort of 
ran him through the ringer. <laughs> he did find it helpful and instructive having two daughters. <laughs> um, no, well, yes, I think I think he. I mean, he was always aware of the politics uh, and the you know structural unfairness um, and uh, and and so on. And he um, and 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 he, he was always. I, I think that's right. I think what you're saying is right. He 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 was aware of those things, and there are some themes in the games uh, that um, are quite contemporary. So there's a, a, a an athlete who's who changes gender between the last Olympics and this Olympics, and a bloke comes in and from the, I don't remember where from some the the committee or something and says this is not allowed. And they ask him lots of very innocent questions about why this isn't allowed. And he says, because a man is a man and a woman is a woman and things. And that just gradually gets broken down throughout the episode. And I, I, I think those... And, and he, it should be said, he wrote the games with uh, Ross Stevenson, uh, who, which was a beautiful partnership that they both enjoyed thoroughly. Um, and which uh, they, we, we used to call it, you know, the, the, the meetings went on for a long time because <laughs> um, they just enjoyed one another's company so much. But, uh, but yeah, I think they, I think, I think that you can see, despite the, I, I agree, the, the, the fact that he was very careful to make sure that um, all sides, if, their asides were uh, were kind of um, a, uh, sort of addressed fairly, but I think that was also uh, that was part of that same thing, which is that structural that that structural uh, unfairness and 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 any kind of um, inconsistencies were noted. Yeah. Um, I wanted to ask about his relationship with fame. Um, just for a couple of minutes, because when he left New Zealand, and we, we didn't really do fame in New Zealand unless you were Sir Edmund Hillary, really, or maybe an all-black, at the time of Fred Dagg. So there really was sort of no one more famous, in, in a sense. And, um, and then he went to broaden his horizons and, and his audiences. And I wondered how, how his experiences as Fred Dagg um, uh, formed his relationship to red carpets of the future? Uh, it wasn't a big red carpet guy, was no, he, Michael? No, I mean, uh, um, he, didn't, he didn't bring Fred Dagg with him to no. Australia. I've heard Sam Neill say that um, Australia was liberating for John um, because it was a foreign country that he could read and, 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 and he could bring his own perspective to it. But it was also liberating because he, he was not a household name. He wasn't going to be mobbed walking down the street. In other words, he could dis discover what he... All the different... See, the range of things that John did was just phenomenal. It was writing of all different kinds for stage, for film, for radio, poetry, prose. Then there was the acting. Um, I don't know if any of you have ever seen uh, the movie of Death in Brunswick, the graveyard scene. It's yeah. just something. It should be against the law to be that funny, really. 
<laughs> and and directing. You know, he he directed um, uh, a, a novel that we published by a crime writer, comic crime writer named Shane Maloney. So the range of things w was was really enormous. But I also think that John, you know, I sort of alluded to it before. He became very famous in Australia, no mistake. But he used his face and that sort of mask and the deadpan delivery to hide behind to say the things that actually he he wanted to say through comedy. Yeah. Mm. And he also took so much pleasure in, in in the pomp and circumstance and ridiculousness of 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 fame and of famous people. And I, I guess with last night's uh, royal nuptials in mind, let's watch another video of the last. Royal wedding. Time now for John Clark and Brian Dorr. Thanks for your time tonight. Oh, great pleasure to be talking with you. Good evening. Terrific. And uh, how's the weather over there? Beautiful. Beautiful. Been a bit iffy lately, but beautiful today. Yeah, and it'd be daytime there, wouldn't it? Yeah, it must be nighttime there, is it? Yes, it is. <laughs> yes, that explains it. Yeah. So, Shane Warne and Liz Hurley. Yeah, what, what, a, a, what a fantastic, fantastic story this is becoming. This is just a fantastic story. Yeah, you only get one of these every... Uh, half an hour. I was going to say generation. Yeah, sorry, Brian, talking to someone else. I'll be about half an hour. Now, then so, they can use the studio. I'm just talking to Brian. So wh what are the details? Give us the details. Well, um, apparently Shane has proposed. Shane has. Yeah, apparently. Right. Sorry, what do you mean, apparently? Well, I mean, it appears. It appears... It appears. It appears where? The story? Yeah. On this piece of paper. Where? After apparently. A apparently, Shane has proposed to Liz Hurley. Apparently, it says here, yeah. he's proposed Okay, so what, what you really mean is been reported. Yeah, it's been reported. And who reported it? I did. I made it up. No, no, no. Beg you can pardon? have some. It's, it's cordial. Have as much as you like. No, Excuse don't me. go and get coffee. Have that. It's Excuse nice. me. Hang Sorry. on. Can I just clarify something? It has been reported that Shane has proposed. Yeah, reportedly. To Liz I'm, re I'm reporting something that was reportedly reported by reporters. Uh, reporters have reportedly reported this, and I'm reporting it to you. Right. It's that been Sha reported that it's the case. Right, that Shane has proposed to Liz Hurley. That's right, that he's right. proposed to her, yes. And hasn't that been denied? It has been denied, yes. So doesn't that mean it's not true? No, it means the story's balanced. We're very keen on balance. Yeah, but right. which, one's, which one's not true? Sorry, Brian, you're breaking up. I can hardly hear you. So have you spoken to Shane or Liz? I've spoken to Shane, haven't spoken to Liz, but yes, I've certainly spoken to Shane. Right, recently, this week? Recently, but no, not this week, no. When was it that you last spoke to him? Uh, 2005, I believe it was. And where was this? It's at the Oval, Brian. He'd dropped a catch. And you yelled something out to him? Yeah, I'd had a couple, Brian. I, I, it's probably not my finest hour, and I'm not proud of it, but... Um, this is six years ago. It is. And the Liz thing, I must say, didn't, cr didn't crop up, Brian. We didn't get to that in the discourse in which we engaged at the time. Right. Terrific. Well, look, thank you very much for It's a fantastic story, though, yeah. It is a great story. Yeah. And uh, keep, keep in touch with us. Get away with it. Yeah, I'll get away with it. This story will be huge in Australia. Ever seen an Australian newspaper? <laughs> so, uh, Michael and Lauren, you worked together on Tinkerings, um, this wonderful book of, of, of John Clark writings, a lot of which we've seen before, but some of which are, will be new mm. to a lot of people. When did you start that process and, and how was it for you? How did you work together? Uh, we were laughing about this before because Lauren has small people in her life. Um, so the editorial conversations were something like, oh, look, I thought, Lauren, we might do this. Well, Michael, I was thinking, would you get down from that now, please? <laughs> um, 
<laughs> we did it very. Uh, we did it in very compressed uh, period of time last year, two or, two or three months. And originally, it was going to be one book, and and then it became clear that, that wasn't going to do justice to the material. We'd already published the poetry separately, uh, and um, and the tournament, of course, is a book in itself. But it became clear. There were, there, we think there are about a million words of Clark and Dorr interviews. Uh, so it was a 30-year project. Uh, and the really interesting thing was you would go back to the, to the, to the interviews in the 1980s, and, but you know, it would be quite reasonable to assume that they'd lost their bite, that the politicians were, were, were long gone, the issues that were being satirised were long gone. But because of John's really, really razor-sharp attention to the shape of these things. They were just as funny now as they were then. So they turned into quite a big book. And, and then um, we worked together to put, uh, to put tinkering. A and the, I, if there's one thing I'm sort of... A, 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 the tinkering says, it, 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 it was just... Um, John was... M the he's such a brilliant performer, it's easy to forget that he was also a brilliant writer. And, and tinkering really preserves inside one book um, the, the, the way he just honed and honed and honed language to make it work. So I don't know. And I had this feeling, uh, which I described to Lauren, particularly when I was doing the interviews, that John was sitting on my shoulder saying, that's mm, nah, just uh, not quite good enough now. We'll leave that one out, but don't forget about that one. It, it was... Um, I really felt that I was uh, channeling him, and, and I know why. I know why it was because uh, that sense of his voice is so inscribed into everything that he wrote that I could hear him as, as we were going through the material. Mm. Yeah, it wasn't difficult because, uh, well, we, we both know him very well, but also... Yeah, the, the material... Well, it's interesting, the Clark and Dorr, which is uh, a pleasure to be here, it's a different book, but um, the f in the last, oh, I'm going to, but, you know, 10 years or something, uh, Dad, who was very keen on... who was sort of very um, forward thinking about the digital space and so on, he got himself... He got There's a Clark and Dorr, you know, uh, YouTube channel and things like that and he and so they'd go up online every week and so on and it's amazing how many comments underneath are um i'm from finland i have no idea who these people are or who they're talking about but this is bloody funny <laughs> um and you know oh i'm from you know and and it's that's interesting because it's that same thing as you were saying before about the things from the 80s still which is kind of what I was trying to get at when I was talking about tone and form, you know, that, yeah. that, that as long as that's clear um, and your kind of satirical point is being made uh, within that, people, people get it, you know, uh, and, and I think that's, that's what's uh, special about the, uh, the Pleasure to Be yeah. Here book. And the other thing too was in the last few years, John had started doing quite different kinds of writing. He wrote... Um, 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 essays about his parents, uh, which are which are very beautiful. Which which start the book, which, which is a beautiful which, place to put them. Yeah. Yeah. And and he also wrote, just in the last year or two, he started doing these um, sort of meditative reflections, quite apparently quite random things that he remembered, um, one subject floating into another, and he was publishing these in Mianjin in Melbourne, and they actually closed the book out so that 
t tinkering is able to reflect um, uh, uh, the many moods of his writing, not, not just the outrageously funny stuff. I was wondering if you'd indulge me and read the, the first paragraph of the, of the Auden chapter. Which one? The On the right-hand side, this. Just that first paragraph. The opening paragraph? Yeah. Across southern Australia, there is a beautiful tree called Leucopogon. If you Google it and find a picture, you'll realise you know it quite well. The Leucopogon seed can germinate only once it has passed through the gut of a bird. The bird eats the seed, softening it through digestion, so that when it drops on the ground, it can open and grow. 20th century poetry is the Leucopogon tree. W.H. Auden is the bird. Next slide, please. <laughs> Isn't that gorgeous? Yeah, there's so much in here. And, and Lauren, I mean, I, I really ought to tell everybody to just buy the book. But um, in your introduction, you talk a little bit about your relationship as a writer with John as a writer and mm. your emails to each other and how you would edit each other. And mm. could you? Yeah, Dad, um, Michael would, this is familiar to Michael, but it's uh, familiar to lots of uh, dad's friends and so on, um, he often would uh, collaborate, you know, he, 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 uh, he liked the idea that he was collaborating with his audience and he liked uh, sending something to people and the, the whole word tinkering and why we, how he, where that came from is that he used to say, I'm just going to have a bit of a tinker, leave it with me, I'll have a bit of a tinker and I'll get it back to you. And he, he was constantly tinkering um, so that he and he just would he'd go over it and over it and it wasn't a it wasn't a um, it, it was a joyful process you know and a creative process um, and I think he learned a lot uh, from having done a lot of stuff himself in the early days so that he he'd learnt how to edit when he was learning how to perform and he was learning how to write so that by the end of his career he had a really good grasp of how all of the stages worked. Um, and he, um, my mum's a writer as well, and my sister works with words. Um, and so in our family, we'd send emails to each other with, oh, this is, I, I gotta, th this is a thing I'm doing, it's due Friday. Uh, and his, to me, and to everyone in the family, always said the headline, the, the email subject line would just be, Wadjas. Uh, which was short for what do you reckon? <laughs> Wodges. And so if I ever need to, to this day, find a draft of something, I'll just type Wodges into my Gmail and 50 million kind of works in progress will come up. And um, a very unhelpful filing system. Uh, but at that process was, uh, I think, really helpful to him and really helpful to me. Uh, because it, it, it sorts you out pretty swiftly when you've got someone like Michael or uh, all the people he sort of trusted um, to bounce off your ideas against. And the idea that things are kind of a collaborative work in progress is a, uh, an idea that I think he greatly enjoyed. Yeah. We are um, fast running out of time and we, we, we have to finish with a song. So... Um, but before we do that, I, I feel like we need a bit of uh, a, a joyous g'day to the spirit of John Clark. So on, uh, if you could all, on three, two, one, yell out g'day, that'll just bring us all together to, to end this beautiful session. Uh, three, two, one. Yeah.
Feels good, doesn't it? Um, I'm sorry we can't talk for another hour, but um, from, from me, from Tom, from Michael, from Lauren, from Text Publishing and the Australian High Commission and the Auckland Writers' Festival, we're so happy to have had you all in the room. Um, and uh, to celebrate the late, very bloody great John Clark. And um, let's finish with his beloved creation, Mr. Fred Dagg. And now the delegate from New Zealand, Mr. Fred Dagg. At the dawn of the day in the great southern ocean, when the world's greatest fish was being landed, and the boat they were pulling it into was sinking, the sea was quite lumpy and the weather was foul, and the bloke with the map was as pissed as an owl, and the boys called out, Maui, you clown, let it go! In the noise, he reached down for his grandmother's jawbone, and he winked at his mates and said, Boys, we don't know how lucky we are. I have a feeling I have stumbled on something substantial. We don't know how lucky we are. We don't know how lucky we are. I was speaking to a mate of mine uh, just the other day, a guy called Bruce Bayless, actually, who uh, lives up our way. He's been away on Around the World 8th Army do for a year, more or less. I said, describe the global position, Bruce. He said, Fred, it's a mess. We don't know how lucky we are in this country. We don't know how lucky we are. We don't know how lucky we are. We don't know how lucky we are. There's a guy I know who lives in town. I see him about once a year, I suppose. He's in a coronary since Easter. He's got a hemorrhage in his ear. He went bankrupt a couple of weeks back, and now his wife's left him too. I said, you're looking odd, mate. You're looking queer. What are you going to do? He said, we don't know how lucky we are to live in this joint, Fred. We don't know how lucky we are, he repeated. We don't know how lucky we are. We don't know how lucky we are. So when things are looking really bad, and you're thinking of giving it away, remember New Zealand's a cracker. And I reckon, come what may, if things get appallingly bad and we're all under constant attack, remember we want to see good, clean ball and for God's sake, feed your bats. We don't know how fortunate we are to have that place. We don't know how propitious are the circumstances, Frederick. We don't know how lucky we are, mate. We don't know how lucky we are. We just don't know how lucky we all are. Full stop. Tom Scott, Michael Haywood, Lauren Clark. You've been listening to a podcast from the 2018 Auckland Writers' Festival. You can find a range of other festival talks, interviews and discussions on iTunes and SoundCloud and on our website writersfestival.co.nz.